0: We want to talk this evening about why Jude is in the canon and exactly what the canon is. I use this occasion because there has been some doubt about the canonicity of the Epistle of Jude. And I'll comment on that later on, but it gives me the excuse to raise this issue and then to bring to bear upon the discussion one of the most important documents in the second century, namely the Muratorian Fragment. So let's begin with the word canon and a comment on the meaning of this Greek word. It's actually the Greek word for a reed, R-E-E-D, and it refers to papyrus reed or other stiff reedy stems which once cut and dried are cut to length in order to form a standard of measure. We might call it a yardstick. You get the idea. The point is that this measuring stick or measuring rod, measuring reed, becomes the canon or the standard of a particular length. Now. As the read is the rule by which the standard is judged or measured, so taking this word over into the biblical discussion, for the Bible, the canon is the measure or standard of the authoritative books of the Old and New Testament. So we're looking for a standard measure of authority with respect to the books of the Old and New Testament, and that standard we have labeled the canon of the Holy Scriptures. So the canon of Scripture is the authoritative books of the Bible, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. But that somewhat begs the question of how do we recognize a canonical or authoritative book of the Bible? So in order to address that question, particularly since we're looking at a New Testament document, the Epistle to Jude, I'm going to ask you to take the Muratorian fragment, which is in the back of your packet, and lay it beside you as we talk about the significance of this document. Now, first of all, you will notice uh, if you scan it, and I know you haven't had time to look through it, but as you scan it, you'll notice it is referring only to the books of the New Testament. So this document that dates from about 170 A.D., okay, about 100 years after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., this document purports to give us guidance on the authoritative New Testament books and contains a record within a hundred years of what we would call the close of the canon with the book of Revelation. All right, well, what does the Muratorian fragment say about how an authoritative or canonical book was recognized? What do we learn from this document? Now, the first thing that you'll notice is the underlined phrase towards the top of the page, Which reads, the third book of the gospel is that according to Luke. So they believed that there were at least three gospels. Alright, at this point in the document, the third gospel is named, namely the gospel according to Luke. But, you will notice above that line, the gospel of Mark is in brackets because there's a reference to a personal name who was present and placed it in his narrative, placed something in his narrative. The narrative has to be the gospel of Mark, and so it's it's rightly assumed that that line is talking about Mark. But then there's no mention of Matthew. However, we know that they accepted Matthew, and how do we know that? Because, go ahead, because the third gospel is mentioned as Luke, and consequently, they know, we know that there are two previously mentioned, though the fragment does not contain it. In other words, this is a piece of a document. Okay, We don't have the entire document, and the front part of the document has been broken off and lost. But nonetheless, when it says the third book, then we understand that the first two books are Matthew and Mark. Then we note in the next paragraph the underlying phrase that the fourth book of the gospel is that of John and so the Muratorian Fragment, 170 AD, is establishing the fact that there's recognition of four Gospels. Right, So we have four Gospels which we understand and know from our English Bibles. All right, now, uh, the next thing to be mentioned, underlined, is a phrase that has to do with the Apostle John. John induces so consistently in his epistles. You find where I am? All right, now notice epistles is plural. Now, if you'll jump down to the last underlined phrase at the bottom of the page, that begins with an epistle of Jude, and notice the next phrase, two bearing the name of John. So we know up above when it says, uh, consistently induces in his epistles plural that this fragment believes that John wrote two, at least two. And perhaps more. Is it conceivable that he had written three, but they only list two? And if so, how? 2nd and 3rd John were combined. Okay, They were considered one book. So it's possible that saying epistles plural is being aware of 1st John as one epistle and 2nd and 3rd John being one epistle, that is being back to back. They're in the same document, in the same scroll. That's a possibility. Okay? The other possibility, of course, is to say that they did not recognize the canonicity of 3rd John. We'll leave that aside and we'll give them the benefit of the doubt that they they go two for one. And we know this to be a pattern in the Old Testament because in the Old Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah were recognized as one book. First and Second Chronicles recognized as one book. So we have this Jewish habit of putting books together because they are of the same genre or they're dealing with the same material. All right. So uh, now we have at least two epistles of John, and if we go back up to that sentence which says John induces and come to the next underlined uh, phrase, moreover, the Acts of the Apostles. All right, so we have four Gospels, we have at least two epistles of John, maybe three, and we have the book of Acts, uh, underscored as authoritative by the Muratorian Fragment. Now, as we move down the page, we come to the epistles of Paul. And you'll notice, as you glance at the next underlying section, that it's preceded by a comment that Paul wrote, seven to seven churches by name. And he lists them there. All right, so we have at least seven epistles of Paul, two churches named as such, But then in the last line of that underlined section, it begins with Corinthians, Ephesians, Philippians, etc. But he, that is Paul, writes twice for the sake of correction to the Corinthians and to the Thessalonians. So now we have nine epistles of Paul. Seven to churches, but two of them twice to the same church. All right, four Gospels. Two possible epistles, maybe three epistles of John, one book of Acts, and Paul's nine epistles to the churches. <clears throat> now, in between the, uh, the, that statement that we just concluded with and the next comment about Paul, we have a mention of the apocalypse. What's the apocalypse? Is that a book you recognize? Revelation. 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 That's the book of Revelation. We call it the Revelation. It's apocalyptic. Okay. All right. We'll skip over that for a minute and we'll go to that next line, which indicates that Paul wrote uh, out of affection and love, one to Philemon, one to Titus, two to Timothy.
1: All
0: right. We had nine epistles of Paul from that previous discussion, the ones to the particular churches. Now we add to that how many more? Two persons. We add four more, correct? Philemon, Titus, and two to Timothy. So nine plus four is thirteen, and we have the thirteen Pauline epistles. All right, now we'll go back up and take a look at Apocalypse and add that into our list, the book of Revelation. And finally, a line we've already looked at before, but this time we're going to put it all together. The last underlined phrase, an epistle of Jude and two bearing the name of John, counted among the note, note the phrase, Catholic epistles. By 170 AD, these epistles are called part of the Catholic epistles, epistles plural. So that gives us Jude, uh, And uh, as we said before, perhaps two or three epistles of John, which ends up being 22 or 23 books. What's missing? Hebrews, Hebrews is missing. What else is missing? James. James, James is missing. What else is missing? Peter. First and second Peter is missing. OK, this is a curious omission. Uh, I'm not going to comment on why or why it may not be there. I simply want to note that there are at least 22 or 23 of the books that we recognize as part of our New Testament, and they are recognized by this Muratorian canon, this Muratorian fragment. All right, now, there's our list of the books that this fragment is recognizing as authoritative scripture. Now, how do they do that? How do they know that it's authoritative scripture? Well, the first way they know is because of the apnusti. All right. Now, I wrote the book on your, uh, I wrote the the word on your outline because I knew you wouldn't recognize it. Of course, it's not a word you routinely see. And we'll ask our professor of Greek what the is. The Yeah. Well. Uh, the apnusti.
1: Look at the word on the page. Oh, okay.
0: Break it, break it down.
1: I'm, I'm still thinking about the Muratorian canon, so I haven't got there for you.
0: Okay. Oh, uh, basically it's the, the spirit of God, so it's, it's spirited out by God, something like that. God that breathed. Right? From what passage? Um, Second 3, 3, Timothy 3.16. It's the Greek word for God I'm breathed threw up theopneustos in the Greek, and theopneusti is the uh, transliterated form of it here, and it means inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well, where do we get that from this canon? If you'll notice the bolded clauses and the first numbered one, in discussing the Apostle John, notice what the Muratorian fragment says. In all of them... Under the one guiding spirit. In other words, the fragment is indicating that the inspiration or the guidance of the Holy Spirit is essential to an authoritative canonical book. So the is part of what the New Testament talks about. With respect to the Old Testament scriptures, they are all given, uh, by, they were all breathed out of the mouth of God. God breathed scripture, all scripture is inspired, the word is literally God breathed. And, uh, that, uh, idea, namely that the Holy Spirit is behind the, uh, inspiration of the books is present here in the canon. So the canon is saying we recognize that an authoritative book of the New Testament is inspired by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. All right, now, I'm going to give you an, an assonential or, or a kind of a series of, uh, I, of words here which will kind of uh, rhyme, or they have the same ending. So we start, start with theopneusti, and we're going to do number two, apostolicity. Apostolicity. Now, where do we get that? <clears throat> Once again, notice the bolded line towards the top of the page in the fragment, Numbered number two. Apostolicity. Okay, who's the apostle in that line? Paul. Paul is the apostle. Alright, so if an apostle had written a book, that would be a mark of canonical authority. Alright, so apostolic authority or authorship was a a mark of canonical authority. Uh, canonical authority. All right, now, the next thing we note is that Paul has associated with him someone else. Who is associated with him? John. Not John. John. Who accompanied Paul? Luke. Luke. Okay, so he'd already talked about the gospel according to Luke. And so here, he's talking about Luke, his associate. Paul and Luke traveled together. Luke was going to record Paul's missionary journeys, at least most of them. And he was also going to record the narrative of the history of Christ in his gospel. All right, so apostolicity means not only did an apostle write the book, and therefore it's canonical or authoritative, But someone who was associated with him, someone who was in the apostolic circle, not necessarily an apostle himself, but someone who was endorsed or drawn into the apostolic circle as Luke was. Luke was not an apostle, but he comes with the endorsement of the apostolic circle of the apostle Paul. So he has the imprimatur of Paul and therefore what he writes has the imprimatur of canonical authority as well. That's what the canon is saying here. Okay? So it's not only an apostle, it's an apostle and his circle. All right? That works for Paul and Luke. Who else does it work for? Is Mark an apostle? Mark is not an apostle. So how does Mark's gospel get into the authoritative canon? Go ahead, Pete. Peter. Yes, because he's in the circle of Peter. Probably because he met him in Rome. Most likely, he met him in Rome. Okay, so that because Mark gravitates to the circle of the apostle Peter, his gospel is authenticated and authoritative on that account. Who else do we have in this apostolic circle who is not an, who's, who is not an apostle himself necessarily? This is arguable. James. James, the brother of our Lord. Right. But because he's in the circle of Christ himself, his epistle is regarded as authoritative. Not the apostolic circle, but the circle of Christ himself, which in his resurrection would be the apostolic circle because James would have been on uh, within that company as well. All right. Now, <clears throat> the, there's one more. ...that uh, we need to think about, and that's the Epistle of Hebrews. So let's turn to Hebrews, which you noticed was missing from the list here of the Muratorian fragment. And we discussed this in our series on the Epistle of Hebrews, but let's revisit that discussion just for a moment with respect to this issue of canonicity. And let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. And as you read through those verses... I want you to tell me what it has to do with the canonicity of the epistle. Okay, your face went up pretty quickly.
1: It says, um, was confirmed
0: to us by those who heard him referring to the Lord. Right, so who are the us? I would imagine one of the, the, the person who's writing... One of the writer of the Hebrews is one of the us, right? Who else? The circle.
1: People that were in the circle.
0: Yeah, people who were in the circle of the risen Christ's community, correct? All right? Which could include the apostles. Okay? So, in other words, there's an implicit, if not explicit, declaration here that the author of the epistle of Hebrews was within the apostolic circle. He was in that community because he heard the Lord, or he heard those that heard the Lord. All right, so I think that that satisfies the criteria of canonical authority for the epistle to the Hebrews, and we'll have occasion later on to remark about uh, Cyril of Jerusalem's comment on the epistle of Hebrews. So, uh, apostolicity, or being within or endorsed by the apostolic circle, is a- another mark of canonical authority according to this fragment. Now the next word is catholicity. Theopneusti, apostolicity, catholicity. <clears throat> now you notice that that's bolded two times by the number three in your copy of the canon or the fragment. They are held sacred in the honorable esteem of the church Catholic, many others which cannot be received into the church Catholic. In other words, the recognition that the church Catholic, meaning what? Roman Catholic Church? Universal, Universal. right. All the Christian churches that are now in existence, existence in 170 A.D., They recognize the authority of these documents. The whole church endorses four Gospels, one book of Acts, 13 epistles of Paul, at least two, maybe three Catholic epistles, and the book of Revelation. And finally, the last criteria is publicity. Publicity. You see, I'm using that assonance to give you the kind of rhyme of it. Each one ends in a T-Y. All right, publicity. That's number four. Commenting about the shepherd of Hermas, which is in the opening of this paragraph. Indeed, it ought to be read, but, it, but that it be made public to the people in the church and placed among the prophets is, not, is impossible. It is not possible. It is impossible. So the Shepherd of Hermas may be useful for reading, but not in the public church, not in the worship service. So there's no publicity, no public reading of that book. Final point of canonical authority. May it be read in the public worship of the saints. If it may not, if it is not accepted for public reading, it does not belong to the church as authoritative scripture. All right. Now, these are these four elements from this fragment, which are fairly standard categories for defining what is a book that belongs to the canon. Is it inspired? Does it belong in the case of the New Testament to an apostle or to his circle? Is it a book which was recognized by the universal church? Is it a book that can be read publicly in the worship service of the saints? These are the kinds of criteria that this fragment lays down for how these books have been accepted into the New Testament. All right, now let's take Jude, which we're studying as a case in point. And let's begin by examining some of the texts of Jude and comparing them with some texts in 2 Peter. So, if you have your finger in the epistle of Jude, would somebody read out verse 6 for us?
1: And the angels have not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Thank you,
0: Nancy. Now, keeping your finger there, let's turn back to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. And when you get it, read it out, please. For second then, Peter two, four. Thank you, Jeremy.
1: For God did not spare angels when they sinned, but set them to sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment.
0: Thank you. You notice a similarity. There is a similarity between Jude six and second Peter two four. All right, let's be, uh, take a look next at Jude 9 back to Jude and if you have verse 9 read it out please
1: that Michael the Archangel when contending with the devil he disputed about the body of Moses durst not bring against him a railing accusation but said the Lord rebuked thee all
0: right now let's turn back to second Peter chapter 2 and let's look at verse 11 of second Peter 2. If you have it, read it out. Second 2 Peter
1: 2.11. Yet even the angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not bring slanderous accusations against such beings in the presence of the Lord.
0: All right, a similar phrase, bringing a railing judgment against the Lord. So there is, once again, this uh, parallel or this symmetry between Jude and 2 Peter. And finally, there are more than what I'm listing here, but nonetheless, I'll take these as examples. Let's take a look at Jude verses 12 and 13. And, and when you have read. it, go ahead and read it out.
1: These are spots in your love feast, the feast you deal without you, serving only themselves. There are clouds without water, carried up by the winds, Laid out tree with a fruit by pulled off by the roots, raging waves of the sea forming up their own shin, wandering stars for whom they reserved the blackness of darkness forever.
0: Thank you. And now turning to Second Peter two seventeen. When you have it, read it out.
1: These are springs without water and mists vivid by a storm for whom the
0: black darkness has been reserved. Very good. Now, you'll notice the similarity, and the similarity indicates that Peter recognized the authority of Jude. He recognizes Jude's authority because he quotes him. He borrows language and imagery from his epistle. Now, why do I suggest that it is Peter who borrows from Jude and not Jude who borrows from Peter? <clears throat> well, uh, yes, go ahead, Nancy. Oh, I was going to say
1: because in this document um, that we just studied, Jude wasn't mentioned.
0: Jude is mentioned, but Peter is not. Oh, okay. I, I, so, so the document doesn't have, help us with this question. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> We're going to say, which is first? Jude or Peter, and I'm suggesting that Jude is first, and Peter borrows or paraphrases Jude's epistle. Why do I say so? Well, let's take the original Greek text. You don't have it, I know, I do, and we'll count up the words in Jude 9. In Jude 9, there are 22 Greek words in that verse. The verse that is parallel is 2 Peter 2.4. There are 16 words. In 2 Peter 2.4. Less words in Peter than in Jude for a similar phraseology. Okay? In, in, that was, I'm sorry, in Jude 6, uh, there are 22, not Jude 9. In Jude 9, there are 24 Greek words. In 2 Peter 2.11, there are 15. And finally, in Jude 12 to 13, there are 40 Greek words. And in 2 Peter 2.17, once again, there are 15. Now you understand why I'm suggesting that Jude is first. It would be perfectly logical for a person to look at a document and shorten it, condense it, make it more compact, extract phrases from it that are to their purpose. It would be much more difficult to see the reverse process. In other words, A person writing a shorter verse, having it expanded by a subsequent writer. So brevity suggests that Peter is second, not Jude. Jude is prior to Peter, and Peter uses him. Now, the point of this exercise is to note not only that there's a precedent, that is, Jude was written before 2 Peter, But it's also to notice that Peter recognizes the authority of Jude's epistle because he borrows from it and he borrows from it without citing it. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. This is not unethical. He's simply using the canonical language of another epistle to incorporate into his own letter because he wants to use it for purposes that he is underscoring. Those purposes are slightly different. We'd have to study the epistle, second epistle of Peter in order to know what that is. But nonetheless, we're going to have to do Jude first to know what his intention is. Alright, so we'll start with Jude first because he's prior. Now, the next step, since we, since we know already that in the first century, Peter recognizes the authority of the epistle of Jude, what about the patristic testimony? Now, what does that word patristic mean? Anyone? Fathers. The church fathers. Yes, the church fathers. Pater, from the Latin word for father. All right. And what do the church fathers say about the epistle of Jude? The earliest testimony comes from Clement of Alexandria, a theologian, Christian theologian of the second and third century. You'll notice that he died about 215 A.D., Now, he wrote a commentary on the epistle of Jude, obviously recognizing its authority as a canonical New Testament epistle. Now, that commentary only exists in fragments, but nonetheless, he did write one, and fragments of it survive. He makes a statement in another work, which is only uh, only a partial part of which exists, his hypotyposis, which is, uh, in which he says, Jude who wrote the Catholic epistle. So for Clement of Alexandria, beginning of the third century in the history of the Christian church, there's no question about the fact that Jude is the author of the Catholic epistle that we have in our New Testament scripture. But there's more. He quotes the book of Jude in his most famous complete work named called The Instructor. So he, in fact, he cites three verses in the Epistle of Jude in that work. And then he makes a statement in another one of his famous complete works, the Stromata, where he says, while indicating Jude prophesied. Now you notice I placed that in quotation marks. That's literally what he said. He says Jude prophesied in Jude 8 and 16. What does that mean he believed about Jude's epistle? How does anybody prophesy? Inspiring. Spiritual. By the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. So he acknowledged here by this phrase that he believes that the epistle of Jude was given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All right. So we have a clear confirmation of what the Muratorian fragment said about 40 years earlier. In 170 A.D., we have a testimony of the Christian church in this fragment that the epistle of Jude is canonical. Now in 215 A.D., we have testimony from Alexandria that this epistle is canonical. Now let's take a look at Tertullian. Tertullian is also from North Africa, but not from Alexandria. Does anyone know where Tertullian comes from? Pete Carthage. Carthage, very good. He's from Carthage. <clears throat> All right. Tertullian dies about 225. He writes a little book on the apparel of women, and in that little book, he says to these consideration is added that fa- the fact that Enoch possesses a testimony in the Apostle Jude. Now you remember that we uh, <clears throat> no, we didn't read that. It's in uh, Jude 14 and 15. <clears throat> but he's referring to the fact that there is testimony to Enoch in Jude, and he calls Jude an apostle. Now, I don't think Jude is an apostle. However, that is arguable. Okay, we could debate that point. Nonetheless, Tertullian did. And Tertullian calling Jude an apostle settles the question of whether what he writes about Enoch is authoritative scripture or not. So in North Africa, both in Alexandria and in Carthage, We have a uniform testimony to the canonical authority of the Epistle of Jude. Now we come to the greatest of the Alexandrian fathers, at least before Athanasius. And that's origin of Alexandria, who died in 255, probably died as a result of having been tortured. Didn't die from the torture, was set free from the torture, but it was so severe that he died as a result of the experience. Origen was the most prolific author of the ancient church. In fact, probably one of the most prolific authors in the whole history of the world. There is a tradition from Epiphanius of Salamis. Epiphanius was also a church father. Epiphanius said Origen wrote 6,000 books. He kept seven stenographers busy as he walked around the room and dictated to them. Now, if that sounds apocryphal, it may be. But nonetheless, we know that Origen wrote many, many books, most of which were condemned and burned. Only about 800 of them survive, tragically. But he got lumped in with later heretics, though he was not responsible for their heresy. He got lumped in with later heretics, and because of that guilt by association, he himself was condemned and his works were destroyed. Some of them were destroyed. All right, what about Origen. <clears throat> Origen has a list of the Old and New Testament canon in his sermons on the book of Joshua. I extracted from that only the part in which he states that James and Jude are in the New Testament canon. But it's that next statement on the next page that is Curious. He also says in his commentary on the Gospel of John, which incidentally has been translated into English for the first time. The whole commentary on John has just been translated into English in the so-called Fathers of the Church series. Here's what he says. If indeed one were to accept the Epistle of Jude, if indeed we've been accepting the Epistle of Jude since 170, We've been accepting the Epistle of Jude since Peter accepted it. First century, haven't we? Here's Origen say, if indeed one were to accept the Epistle of Jude. What's going on? Sometime before, between, sometime before 255, sometime before Origen's death, is there an argument about whether Jude should be accepted or not? Yes, there is. And Origen knows it. So he's, so to speak, conceding if one were to accept it. He himself has already said he accepts it, but he's aware of those who do not. Who are these people that do not accept the canonical authority of Jude? They are the Syrians. You know all about Syria today, don't you? Yes. The Syrian Christian Church, sometimes called the Antiochian Orthodox Church. Okay, because they're Eastern Orthodox, they're being heavily persecuted in our day. But nonetheless, there was a very strong Christian church in Syria because Christians were first called Christians in Syrian Antioch. And the church grew there. But the Syrian church was suspicious of the epistle of Jude. Why? Because of that 14th verse. Because of the mention of Enoch, because of that mention of Enoch's prophecy. And the Syrian church said, that's not in the Bible. So this epistle is quoting something that's not in the Bible. And therefore, we will not accept it. And they would not accept it for 500 years. But in the 6th century, they finally did. And they gave up their opposition to the Epistle of Jude, so that the Syrian Orthodox Church today accepts the same New Testament canon that we do. And one of the reasons they do that is because of Cyril of Jerusalem and Athanasius, our next two figures. These two church fathers carry a great deal of weight in all of Eastern Orthodoxy, whether it's Greek, whether it's Russian, whether it's Serbian, whether it's Antiochite. Cyril of Jerusalem, great patriarch of that city in the fourth century, died about 386 and his catechetical lectures, which are lectures on the Apostles' Creed. Notice what he says. In addition to these seven Catholic epistles of James, Peter, John, and Jude. So how many epistles does he think John wrote? Three. Three. Now you can't get seven out of that list any other way. What, What is missing? What would you put into the Catholic epistles that he doesn't have here? Same thing that was missing before. What was missing before? Hebrews (coughs) is missing before. All right, so he does not put Hebrews among the seven Catholic epistles, but he goes on in these catechetical lectures to say 14 epistles of Paul. He thinks that Hebrews is Pauline. So there's no question about the canonicity of Hebrews for Cyril jerusalem He places it among the Pauline epistles and leaves seven to the Catholic category. All right. My point to observe here is that the absence of Hebrews from any of these other lists may mean that it was folded into Paul's epistles. okay? And they recognize it as being written by the Apostle Paul. If you open your King James Bible and look at the title above the Epistle of Hebrews, it'll say the Epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Now, we went over that you know, a couple of years ago and we went to the Epistle of Hebrews, and we talked about that title, and we said that title was added on later on. It is not in the oldest manuscript, the oldest Greek manuscript of the Epistle to Hebrews. There's no Paul's Epistle to the Hebrews. It just says Pros Hebraeus, okay? Or Twice Hebraeus to the Hebrews. All right. <clears throat> I don't think Paul wrote it, and I made my case out for why I don't think Paul wrote it, and the majority of scholars don't think Paul wrote it, but there are still some diehards that think he did, and that's all right. <clears throat> you're welcome to believe it. Obviously, Cyril of Jerusalem did. You're in good company. David, you had a question. Well, uh, as I remember uh, maybe from your lecture, uh, Hebrews
1: used the Septuagint for its text quote, and I don't think the Apostle Paul, Paul did
0: give quote from the Septuagint. It, it can, that question can go both ways. Uh, in fact, it's, con, it's a continual flux of, of study. What text are they using? So it never agrees exactly with the uh, recensions of the Septuagint. So uh, it's possible that they're quoting a kind of combined Masoretic or Hebrew and Greek version. You're right to observe that there's a preponderance of the Septuagint in the book of Hebrews, but you, but it's not exact in every case. <clears throat> All right, any other question? <clears throat> All right, what do we got here? We've got second century document, the Muratorian fragment, which was discovered in Rome, incidentally. Okay, We don't know where it comes from. <clears throat> But we have first century testimony to the canonicity of Jude. We have African testimony to the canonicity of Jude. We have Palestinian testimony to the canonicity of Jude, namely Cyril jerusalem And finally, we close with Athanasius, which brings us back to Alexandria again, because Athanasius was born in Alexandria, Egypt. And in his uh, festal letter, his letter uh, 39 of Easter 367, he lists the canonical books of the New Testament, And he writes the epistles called Catholic One of Jude. Case closed. From Peter in the first century to the Muratorian fragment in the second century to uh, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, Origen, Cyril, Jerusalem, and Athanasius in the fourth century, we have a uniform testimony to the canonicity of the epistle of Jude. The only exception is... The, the holdout Syrian church, which eventually throws in the towel in the, sixth, in the fifth century. All right, so we know the Jews in the canon because the church said so. No, because the church recognizes the mark of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on the book. That's why. And the fact that it comes out of the apostolic circle. That's why. And the fact that it's read in all the churches, that's why. And the fact that it is useful and edifying for reading in the public worship of the church, that's why. There is no question about the acceptance of Jude as canonical with one little glitch of the Syrians. But they finally realize the error of their ways, repent in dust and ashes, and put it into their Bible too. Alright, it's time for your break. So let's take a breather and we'll come back to talk about canonicity from a confessional document, namely the Westminster Confession of Faith. Alright, now let's take a look at our confessional standard, namely the Westminster Confession of Faith. And I have printed into your handout the fifth paragraph of chapter 1, which I will read and encourage you to listen as we go. Notice what the confession is saying. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to a high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth, notice that phrase, infallible truth, And divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Now, I want to begin with the proof text at the end of that paragraph. I want us to begin with John 16, verses 13 and 14, and ask ourselves, what does that have to do not only with this paragraph, but what does it have to do with canonicity? So if you'll turn with me to John 16, verses 13 and 14. And once again, whenever someone has it, please read it out for us. That when he the Spirit of truth comes, he will
1: guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine, and shall disclose it to
0: you. What does disclose mean? Reveal. It means reveal. So, who is speaking here, Ben? Yes. It's, it's Jesus speaking. And to whom is he speaking? To, disciples. to his disciples. All right, notice what he is doing. Jesus is assuring them of the presence of the Holy Spirit to disclose to them what he wants them to know. Now, that's a reference to inspiration by the Holy Spirit, amongst other things. But it certainly indicates that the apostles were under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost by the work of Christ, by the promise of Christ. And this passage strongly underscores that. All right, so our Lord himself is endorsing the inspired writing or inspired revelation that is carried on by the apostles in their canonical works. It's implicit in that those canonical works are going to include the books of the New Testament. Of course, he disclosed many more things to them than they could record at the end of this gospel. John says that all the books in the world could not contain what Jesus had said nor what would be revealed to them. Nonetheless, what we have is essential and sufficient for us. Now let's turn next to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 10 to 12. So here's Christ endorsing the Holy Spirit character of the revelation of the apostles What does Paul say here in 1 Corinthians 2? When you have it, read it out. Verses 10 to 12.
1: But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of a man, which in him which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man, but the Spirit of God. Verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, so that we might know the things that are <coughs> given to us of God.
0: All right, now Paul there is claiming his own divine inspiration. He is claiming to be moved and guided by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so Christ endorses the Holy Spirit inspiration of his apostles. Paul claims that very same Holy Spirit inspiration for what he is writing, <clears throat> what he is teaching. And finally let's turn to 2nd Peter chapter 3. We looked at 2nd Peter in a different connection with respect to Jude earlier. Let's look at 2nd Peter chapter 3 verses 15 and 16. When you have it, go ahead and read it out. And
1: in regard the patience of our Lord to so be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things heartless and which the untaught and unstable distort.
0: Now, what's Peter saying about Paul's letters? They are authoritative. The wisdom given to him. What would that wisdom be? Wisdom from above. It would be wisdom communicated by the Holy Spirit. And notice, he says in verse 16, all his letters... Peter was aware of all of the Apostle Paul's letters, all 13 of them, or maybe 14 if you think he wrote Hebrews. Now, notice what else Peter says about them. Paul has some things that are difficult to understand. We know that is the case, do we not? There are challenging aspects to the epistles of Paul. But, nonetheless... The one thing that there is no difficulty about is with regard to salvation in verse 15. That message is clear. It's clear in Paul, it's clear in Peter, it's clear in the teaching of Christ, it's clear in the teaching of the apostles, it's clear in every book of the New Testament. There may be difficult things in Paul and other places. Hebrews is particularly challenging, but... Nonetheless, one thing is very clear. The simplest child can understand it. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for sinners. Do you believe in Jesus that he died for your sins? That's simple, basic gospel message, and it's in every book of the New Testament. So, with respect to these proof texts at the end of the confession, we're underscoring the fact that the inspiration of the writers of the New Testament is primary. Well, let's go back to the top of that paragraph. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church. Do we believe that the scriptures are authoritative because the church says so? Cheryl, you're shaking your head. Because
1: it's because the Bible says so. Because the
0: Bible says so. But the Bible belongs to the church. So the church says the Bible says so. So that makes it so. It's a good Roman Catholic position. I didn't think I was addressing a Roman Catholic audience. I thought you were all Protestants. Sit down, here, you're, you're. <laughs> you're the. I'm a Heritage. For making you the Catholic argument. I don't know. <laughs> no. You're you were supposed to respond. You wanted you, us to burn you. Want, you to want to defend the vicar of Rome. All right. No, no you wanted us to, to respond to you. So you thought we, thought we were Catholics when we didn't. <laughs> All right. What is the basis for the authority of the scripture? The testimony of the church? Internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Eternal testimony of the Holy Spirit, even before that. Mark's, Mark's scripture. And the- True. The authority of Scripture depends upon God alone, not upon the church. Okay? This is crucial to the difference between Catholic and Protestant. It's crucial to the understanding of why Luther broke with Rome. It is not about a book which is holy because the church says it's holy, or the Pope says it's holy, or the teachings of the Vatican or Council of Trent say it's holy. It's because God says it's holy. All right, now how do we know it's the Word of God? We can be raised to esteem this by the testimony of the church, all right? The church can say that God says, all right? But the church doesn't say that the Pope says that God says. So it's only authoritative because the church says that God says, not because God says. Regardless of what the church says, because the church can blunder, the church can err, church can make many mistakes, and it has. The church can go astray. Churches can become synagogues of Satan, as our confession says. We believe the Roman Catholic Church is, in fact, a synagogue of Satan, though you wouldn't know it from the public media. All right. How, then, do we conclude that this book, the Holy Scriptures, is the Word of God? That it is God's authoritative declaration? Well, the first thing we note is that it says so, thus saith the Lord. How many times does this book say, thus saith the Lord? Four thousand times the book says, thus saith the Lord. The book claims to be the word of God. Its own internal testimony is, thus saith the Lord, over and over and over again. But what about this heavenly, heavenliness of the matter? What is our confession driving at when it talks about being induced to, under, to, to accept the high authority of Scripture, indeed its direct divine inspiration, by the heavenliness of the matter? What matter is it talking about? It's talking about the words on the page of the Bible, Correct. Why is it saying the heavenliness of the matter? Centered to God. partner. It's centered in God. Centered to God. Where did it come from? Heaven. Came from heaven, ultimately, didn't it? Right? The Holy Spirit moved men to right. Okay? He carried them along, as Peter says in his epistle. Okay? Now, the origin of that revelation is in God himself. He is the source of that disclosure. He is the source of that language. Now, it's true that he operates upon the consciousness, the educational background, the learning, the accomplishment of the writer. He uses all of that, but what he superintends is his very word, the Ipsissima Verbum Dei, the very words of God. So the writer writes what God wants him to write as God moves him to write in accordance with his own personality, style, and unique theological insight. Therefore, the heavenliness of the matter is referring to the fact that these words come ultimately from heaven. That's their origin. They do not arise from the earth, primarily. They arise from God himself. And the heavenliness of the matter means that what we're reading reflects The character of heaven, the character of the God of heaven. We're in an age in which the issue of human character is in a crisis. What did the woman at that hospital outside the naval yard say the other day? I was amazed that the public media put it on TV. We must become aware. We must begin to realize that something very different is abroad in our culture. Something very evil is abroad in our culture. We know that that's true, do we not? It's called sin. It's called sin. Are these tragedies going to force us to come to grips with the radical character of evil? Even a curse which comes by disarranging a person's mind. Tragic curse, but a curse which can be restrained if properly understood, diagnosed, and treated. Why then don't we recognize that? For the sake of the human being that's disturbed by it. And take compassion upon them and help them. Not turn them loose to be destructive. Unrestrained. Alright, so, the scriptures give us this heavenly character. That's what the heavenliness of the matter is. The next phrase is the efficacy of the doctrine. What's the word efficacy mean? Anyone? What's efficacy mean? It produces effects. Okay, what's doctrine? Give me a synonym for doctrine. Teaching. Yeah, it's the teaching of the Bible. Notice, the teaching of the Bible is effective. What effect does it have? Well, it changed our lives, didn't it? It turned us from hating God to loving Christ, didn't it? or being indifferent to God, to being passionately in love with God. All right, so the effect of the scripture is to produce change, transformation. And those who learn it, love it, believe it, possess it, it's theirs. Because it has had the effect of teaching their mind, their heart, their soul, their will, and their personality. And when it does so, we know that that is the power of God at work, the power of the Holy Spirit at work through the word to affect change and transformation in sinners' lives. Even sinners such as we are, sinners such as Augustine was, sinners such as Martin Luther was, sinners such as John Calvin was, sinners such as Jonathan Edwards was, <clears throat> so on and so forth we can go. We know The stories have changed lives, marvelously, magnificently changed lives. Hardcore prostitutes, alcoholics, drug dealers, murderers, rapists. We know that they have been saved by the grace of Christ and they've repented and given up all of that wickedness and devoted their lives to the Lord Jesus. We know that the effect of that gospel can do that. Because the Holy Spirit can transform a life. Two Jewish Adults, 50 years of age, in a motel room in western Pennsylvania, reading the New Testament, converted by reading the New Testament. Walked across the street to join a Presbyterian church. Died in that faith of the New Testament. Raised in the synagogue. 50 years in Jewish tradition, sat down in a motel room and opened the New Testament and started to read, and the Holy Spirit changed their hearts, walked across the street to become a part of a worshiping community, even though they lived 150 miles away and they only drove to that western Pennsylvania town on the weekends. But they were in that pew every Sunday morning. Yes, powerful. Powerful effects. Next phrase, the majesty of the style. What's this style they're talking about? It's what C.S. Lewis said about the King James Bible. The most magnificent accomplishment in the history of the English language. Yes, it is a magnificent accomplishment literary product, the majesty of the style, that language which just catches you up. Well, that is, if you still read Elizabethan English, if you still read the King James version, which I encourage you to read for literary purposes, not because it's the most reliable text, not because it's the best translated text, but it's the most magnificent text You can't get away from the Lord is my shepherd in the King James Version. You read the 23rd Psalm in any other version and it's dead. It doesn't vibrate. It doesn't move you. All right. This is this kind of majestic style because it has the majesty of God behind it. The style of this book is the style of the person who inspired it. And that is the majestic Lord God Almighty on high. The marks of that are all over this book. You need to read Hebrew and Greek to appreciate it in its depth. But nonetheless, in your very good English translations, like the New American Standard, here I am, I'm pounding that again, but in your very good English translations, not paraphrases like the New International Version, but in your good English translations, that brilliance and majesty of style can be brought out, even in English translation. But when you read it in the Hebrew, and when you read it in the Greek, and when you see the beauty of this language, the power of this language, the concatenation of this language, how it's been arranged, how it falls out, how it draws your heart into the heart of God through Christ Jesus by the Holy Spirit, you praise the Lord. Indeed, you do for the majesty of this style. This book is great literature, but it has all the marks of inspired literary greatness in it. Think of it this way. Don't think of it as just a devotional get-through day by day. Look at the drama of the majesty of this language. Next word, next phrase, the consent of all the parts. Consent in what? Teaching. Consent in teaching. Consent in all the parts. All the parts consent in accord, in harmony. There are no disagreements, no contradictions. There are no mistakes in the Bible. Properly translated in the original autographer. All right. Here the confession is saying, look, From Genesis to Revelation, we have harmony and agreement throughout. That is, we have harmony and agreement that it is all come from God and it is his revelation to us. He is speaking to us and he does not lie. He does not contradict himself. He does not deny himself. So whether I can understand the harmony, whether I can understand the agreement, I know it's there somewhere, but I'm too stupid to see it. And so I got to ask the Holy Spirit to illumine my dumb brain so that I can see it. Not give me a new revelation. I don't need any more new revelations. i got all the revelation I need right here. But what I do need is illumination. I do need a brain that's not on sleep mode. Come on. Let me understand what you are saying in accordance with what you've said elsewhere. So as we go on in this confessional statement, we will come to a comment in which the confession says, "The, the, the infallible interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So when I come to a place that doesn't seem to comport or agree with another place, then I'm going to go to other scriptures and try to illuminate that dark passage for myself so I understand why it agrees with the other one. I'm going to take the clear and use it to help me understand the less clear. That's a principle of illumination, also a principle of exposition and explanation. Now, the next phrase is the scope of the whole. The scope of of the whole, which is to give glory to God. What's the purpose of the whole Bible, Genesis 1, 1, 2, Revelation 22? What's the purpose of to give glory to God? The catechism out of this confession, out of the assembly that wrote this confession, the catechism begins, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The purpose of the book is to give all glory to God and to humble us. To humble man in the presence of God's own revelation and self-disclosure. The next phrase, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation. Many ways to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. This is the only way to salvation. And I will only find it in this book. I will not find it in the Jewish uh, Tanakh. I will not find it in the Muslim Quran. I will not find it in the Buddhist Gita. Now, when I say I won't find it in the Tanakh, I won't find it in the Tanakh because it's not completed. It's not fulfilled. It's not going to bring me to Jesus. I can read the bare text and it could bring me to Jesus, but it won't bring me to Jesus because they won't allow it to be fulfilled. They won't put it on their, in their Bible. No. It is this book... This scripture, this canonical collection of 66 authoritative canonical books, which shows me the only way of salvation, which is through Jesus Christ. I'm not going to get to him by my good works. I'm not going to get to him by my philanthropic benevolence. I'm not going to get to him by the fact that I do good to my neighbor. I'm going to get to him through Jesus Christ. Everything else should fall into place behind that. And the fact that this book is unique in that regard places it in a category of divine revelation. Many other incomparable excellencies. The next phrase. Many other incomparable excellencies. What do the writers of the Confession have in mind here? One thing they have in mind is the fact that there are historical events recorded in the Bible, or particularly in the New Testament, that aren't recorded in the Old Testament, and we would not know these events without the incomparable excellence of the whole, full-orbed revelation of God. Now, we had an instance of that earlier when we read Jude 9. Jude 9, which is the account of Michael's dispute with Satan over the body of Moses. As you look at that passage in your Bible, turn to your Bible, and those of you that have a cross-reference Bible, those of you that have a cross-reference Bible, is there an Old Testament cross-reference for the story of the dispute? Not the quotation, the Lord rebuke you, but the story of the dispute. Do you know any Old Testament story in which Satan argues with Michael, the archangel, over the body of Moses?
1: Is that Deuteronomy 34? It is
0: not even in Deuteronomy 34. Moses' death is in Deuteronomy 34, but not a dispute over Moses' dead body. All right. So here is an an illustration of something that is an incomparable excellency, namely something that we don't know otherwise. Because only Jude tells us. We wouldn't know it if Jude hadn't told it to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what other incomparable excellencies are there here? Well, there are echoes of the words of Brother Jesus in the words of Brother Jude. Yes, If I'm right about the narrative aspect of this epistle, if what Jude is doing is using a vocabulary and a narrative which is working off of his brother's own proclamation and preaching, if that is accurate, then what we have is an incomparably excellent echo effect here. We are reading Christ through his brother's words. We are reading Christ's words through his brother's use of Christ's words. We're being reinforced in the brother Christ's doctrine by reading Jude's doctrine. Jude submitting to, borrowing from, using his brother's teaching, his brother's compassion, his brother's act of salvation, Jude doing all of that and then writing his epistle in echo style, reflecting in his narrative life the narrative life that he spent with his brother in Nazareth and beyond. If I'm right about it, you have the article, you have the suggestion from last week. All right, now, the final phrase is the entire perfection thereof. The scriptures are the perfect record of God's voice, thus saith the Lord. They're the perfect record of God's story, the story of his self-disclosure to his people. He is showing himself to you in these pages, He's letting you see what he's like in these pages. And as he's letting you see what he's like. He's inviting you to come to him. Come to me where I am. Come to my kingdom. Come to my heavenly arena. Come to my son. Come to the spirit of my son. Come to the glory of my throne room. Come to the lapis lazuli sea. Come to the rainbow, rainbow overarching my throne. Come to all the beauty of the golden city with its city four square. Come. Come to me. It's my self-disclosure. I'm disclosing myself to you that you may come to me. Don't sit in your pew and say, I have to come to you. You come to me. That's what I'm inviting you to. That's what my text is inviting you to. That's what preaching should invite you to. Come to me and to my world, to my realm, to my domain, to my arena, to my heaven of heavens. Come up to me. This is a perfect record. Of the incarnation of the Son of God. The most astounding event in the history of mankind. That God would become man. For our sake. For our sake. A perfect record of the death and resurrection of that Son of God. A perfect record of things unseen. That's Hebrews 11.1. How do we know these invisible things are real? Because faith puts us in contact with them. Faith... Allows us to possess them. Faith takes ownership of them. That's what Abel did. It's what Enoch did. It's what Noah did. It's what Abraham did. It's what Isaac and Jacob did. It's what Moses did. It's what David did. It's what the prophets did. It's what the apostles did. It's what every Christian has done. It took possession of those invisible things. The substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things invisible and not seen. Faith brings that reality to your soul, to your life, to your heart, to your to your personality. Well, how do we finally understand the confirmation of these incomparable evidences or abundant evidences through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit to the persuasion of the Holy Spirit bear and witness with that word by means of those incomparable evidences that this is the very word of God we are assured it is so because the Holy Spirit seals that truth from those incomparable excellencies and evidences upon our consciousness and convicts us that when thus saith the Lord occurs God is speaking God is speaking to me. And I want to listen. I want to believe. I want to humbly bow and say, speak, Lord, thy servant heareth. Well, do we have any help in digging into this epistle? All right, I've given a list there of uh, three commentaries. Uh, The one for uh, a lay audience, brief, but... Uh, sound, uh, not particularly stunning, but nonetheless sound, is Philip Towner's recent Second Peter and Jude published by University Press in 2009. Now, for those that want uh, more meat, but also the Greek text in more detail, Gene uh, Green's is probably the best because it's the most recent and the freshest. But watch out for his undue dependence upon Greco-Roman rhetorical style. You can dismiss that because it doesn't affect the way he treats the meaning of the passage itself. He tries to use it to illustrate rhetorical character in the epistle. That is true, but you don't need to overdo it with this runaway stuff where he's looking in every corner for a pagan author to help him understand the rhetoric of Jude. Jude can, uh, Jude's rhetoric can be explained uh, very well, not only from his own skill in the Greek language, but of his exposure to the Greek language. I'll have, say, I'll have more to say about that the next time we meet. But also the fact that he was raised a Jew. And being raised a Jew, he's a Semite. And a Semite has a picture language. He sees things. He just doesn't write words. He writes pictures. That's the way the Old Testament's written. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew because Hebrew is a picture language. It's a language of meat, not bone, muscle, not skeleton. There's a lot of flesh on the Hebrew text. And Jude is raised in that milieu. He's raised to think that way. And consequently, he doesn't need pagan authors to help him with rhetoric or imagery or style or anything else. It comes with being a literate Old Testament Jew. Now, New Testament Christian. All right. Now, the other commentary is Curtis Geese's. He's a very fine Lutheran commentator, very conservative. But he's got runaway Lutheran sacramentalism all over the commentary. What do I mean by that? He's always talking about baptismal regeneration. He's always turning every text that has something to do with blood or salvation into the Eucharist, into the Lord's Supper. He can't stay away from it, okay? He has to confirm everything by his Lutheran sacramental confirmation or affirmation. Ignore it, but read what he does with the Greek text. Very good Greek scholar and very sound for the most part in the way he explains the meaning of the epistle. So, if you want more... On my evaluation of commentaries on Jude, if you want more on my evaluation of commentaries in the whole Bible, every month I update that list of commentaries. That's my business to stay on top of what's being written. New commentaries published, what are they doing? What are they saying? That's my business to know that. I put that on the website every month. I update that list. So you can take a look at commentaries from Genesis to Revelation. But the newest ones coming out, uh, Jack Lundboom's commentary on Deuteronomy just came out. I have a copy of it on my desk at home. I'm going to start to assess what it's all about. And then I'll put it up on the website and tell you why it's good or why it's bad or why it may be in between. That's my job. So you can look at that list and see a lot more commentaries on the Epistle of Jude. Some of them are older. Some of them are newer, but not as good because they're too liberal, they're too radical. There's one commentary that was published two years ago in which the author says explicitly, we cannot use this epistle for our day. There's too much hate speech in it. Yeah, yeah. So what he wants to do is he simply wants to remove all the hate speech from it, and then he'll boil the epistle down to love, peace, joy, and, you know, we shall overcome or something. Because he got paid for it. And he teaches in a seminary. And, you know, that's what liberals do. Liberals get jobs. They get well paid. And they teach uh, students in liberal seminaries that go out in the liberal churches. Any other questions you have? Why is Jude in the canon? Because it has the marks of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit on it, apostolicity on it, catholicity on it, publicity on it, it was publicly read, and it has the endorsement of the Apostle Peter. Jo- uh, Scott? Um, when the divine say the heavenly of the matter because they thought in terms of pilgrimage uh, back to Augustine, are they also thinking that this is a work which has us as pilgrims on the way to the heavenly city, laying hold of the heavenly realities, not an earthly philosophy? Baxter's Richard Baxter's Saints Everlasting Rest is very close to that. Okay. Because it's, he's expounding the Epistle of Hebrews, in part, in that huge book, over a thousand pages. But, is it articulated the way I would do it, the way you would do it, the way Voss would do it? No, it is not. But, the, but, but in a nutshell, the, the principle is there, okay? The, the drama isn't so much. Even Owen's commentary on Hebrews, on Hebrews 11, touches on it, but he doesn't, he doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't spring on him. It doesn't possess him. He doesn't, he doesn't see the power of the pilgrimage motif. It's one of the reasons that I took the position that the, 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 the meaning of the title Epistle of Hebrews is Epistle to the New Testament Pilgrims, the Pilgrims of the End of the Age. It's not written to the Jews. It's written to Christian pilgrims, Jew and gentile alike, who are the Pilgrims of the End of the Age. Going back to the use of Hebrew in Genesis 14. All right, let's close with prayer then. We are grateful, Lord, for the inspired word that you have granted to us by your wonderful kindness and mercy, because it is your very word, the word of life, the word of salvation, the word of grace, the word that reflects heaven to us, even as we read it. The word, it draws us into your character, yea, it draws us into your life, into your eternal life, through Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord. We bless you then for this epistle written by our Lord's brother, and we pray, Father, that we may understand it in perhaps a new way, a way which will cause it to echo the words of Brother Jude, Brother Jesus, and our needy hearts. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Do not come back next week. October 4.